This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Today on the Everything 80s podcast, how Apple's 1984 commercial changed the world of advertising and the Super Bowl forever. Hey there, what's happening? Welcome back to the Everything 80s Podcast. I'm Jamie. Thanks for coming on out today. And there have been many iconic commercials over the years, but which one stands above them all? The Apple 1984 Macintosh commercial debuted in January 1984 during Super Bowl 18. It would end up changing the way commercials and marketing would be done and help to change the Super Bowl into an even bigger event. So we're going to look at this really amazing topic and one of the most groundbreaking commercials not just from the 80s, but of all time, and how it changed the way advertisers looked at how they can promote their business and the whole idea of what the Super Bowl could actually be. But before we get into all that, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. I should be there. Okay, let's go. So what got us to Apple's 1984 commercial? So here's the quick question. Who won the Super Bowl last year? Without looking it up, what was the score? How about three years ago? We all know the spectacle that is the big game, but the event itself has grown larger than actual football and it has become a showcase for brands to strut their stuff in the most expensive commercial block on TV. The Super Bowl commercials have arguably become bigger than the game itself, especially if it's a lackluster year or game. No matter who is playing and whether you like the teams or not, there is no doubt been commercials that you've remembered for years and years more than the game itself. Case in point, without looking it up, I'm positive you can't tell me who won the Super Bowl in 1995, but there's no doubt you still remember the Budweiser Frog commercial. How about the winner in 1999? Probably nothing, but you've never forgotten the What's Up commercial from that year either. With over 100 million people just watching in the U.S. alone, advertisers have to pull out all the stops in order to make an impact, also to get their brand elevated and compete against the other epic commercials. And over the years, we've seen some pretty significant commercials, which went beyond just promoting a brand, but made a mark on the culture. Besides those two Budweiser commercials, here's some other standouts over the years, including the I'd Like to Buy the World a Coke ad from 1971, shout out Don Draper, the Mean Joe Green Coca-Cola commercial from 1979, the Cindy Crawford Pepsi commercial from 1992, you know which one I'm talking about, the Force Volkswagen commercial from 2011, the puppy love Clydesdale horse Budweiser commercial from 2014, the iconic Where's the Beef Wendy's commercial, and then, you know, other ones like the Snickers Betty White commercial from 2010. There's clearly a ton more, and you may have your own personal favorites, but this was just to show a sampling of commercials that were considered water cooler talk the day after the game, and long beyond that too. As mentioned, these commercials can shape the culture. You can learn as much about the progression of a society and culture by just looking at Coca-Cola ads over the years as you would read in an encyclopedia. But during one Super Bowl, an advertisement appeared that changed the trajectory of marketing and the Super Bowl itself forever. And that's, of course, the iconic Apple 1984 commercial to reveal the Macintosh. 
So here's the story with Apple up to this point. And I'm sure you probably are relatively familiar with the development of Apple computers, but you might not know the company probably wouldn't have existed if it wasn't for a toy whistle inside a box of Cap'n Crunch cereal. And it's a show I've covered all about the story of how uh, Cap'n Crunch led to Apple computers. It's the quick thing is, is that this little toy whistle was able to create this certain tone when it was blowing it is 2600 hertz. And this led to a group of hackers finding out that this tone could uh, bypass AT&T phone signals to make long distance phone calls for free. And that led them to creating these little boxes that could bypass it. And they were called the Freakers. And that got the attention of a very young Steve Wozniak who shared it with his friend Steve Jobs. And they got into the idea of making their own boxes, they called the Blue Box, that they could sell. And they both said this was the absolute foundation for the creation of Apple computers. Uh, but so that that's a quick rundown and things progress way more. I mean, one of the best books I think ever uh, is the Steve Jobs biography by Walter Isaacson. Definitely read that. But here's a little more on how things progressed after Apple got up and running. The first foray into the computer tech world was the Apple One, which was more like a computer kit that was separate pieces that you could attach together. The big thing was that you could now attach a keyboard. And when you typed, it appeared on a monitor. This was never possible before, but Steve Jobs hated that it was such an unorganized device, the Apple One. So the Apple II would solve this problem by encasing everything, giving the whole computer much more of a clean look. Apple was also making big advances in computing, including the use of a mouse and graphics that had never been seen before. They also stole an idea from Xerox that had an actual user interface where you now had what was called a desktop on your screen that you could drag files around. You can watch, if you go on YouTube, you can watch a video demonstration from 1982 uh, to see this user interface. And remember, a user interface had never existed before. And uh, what you're watching is what Steve Jobs would have and what helped propel the future of Apple. Uh, so hopefully, you've, again, read that Walter Isaacson biography because it's, it's an incredible look into not just the man, but the development of you know, arguably the biggest company of our time and how they changed technology in the world. The one big takeaway uh, from this whole early part of Apple is that if Xerox had pushed the idea of bitmapping, which is what's involved with the, you know, the desktop and the user interface where you could see images and the folders on the screen, and if Jobs hadn't basically stolen it, you'd probably be listening to this on your Xerox phone right now. So up to that point, computers were more for techies and not for the everyday person. Jobs wanted to change this and introduce a computer that could find a place in every home in America. He wanted it to not only be more powerful, but user-friendly and meant for the masses. This idea would become the Macintosh. So let's look at the state of advertising up till the 1984 commercial. It's not that commercials didn't have as big an impact as they do today. It's just the approach was different. When advertising first started at the dawn of television, no one knew what the best approach was. A commercial for a watch would just show the watch, and it was basically like, well, here it is. If you've been a big fan, I'd mentioned Don Draper. If you've been a fan of Mad Men, the, the brilliant Mad Men, you know the 60s was the time where advertising exploded in all mediums, including TV, print, and radio. What these people were doing now was selling you the idea of the product and creating a feeling that went along with it. If they did their job right, and they often did, you found yourself desiring a certain product because of the feeling and effect that went along with it. You weren't buying a fancy new dishwasher. You were buying the idea of convenience 
uh, modernity and keeping up with the Joneses. You weren't as much buying a product as you were buying a lifestyle. So this is still at the core of advertising, but when it comes to television advertising, the ads are pretty simple. So it's not to say they weren't effective. And again, this can be seen in that I'd like to buy the world a Coke ad from 1971. It conveyed a message and a movement and was very effective, but it was basically just people singing on a hillside. There wasn't a lot of production value to it. Same with that Mean Joe Green commercial. Again, iconic and effective, but it was just two people standing in a hallway. These commercials definitely met their intended agenda, far exceeding them actually, but pretty much all commercials looked the same. Was there a new approach that might be more effective? And then this would lead into how Apple would market the new Macintosh. And it all comes down to wanting to be a pirate. And the idea of being a pirate or a rebel was at the core of Apple originally. Jobs and Wozniak were all about the counterculture and the focus was being on being a hacker, like I mentioned before with the Freaker movement. Freaker being spelt with a P-H, just FYI. The hacking counterculture aspect is what Jobs wanted to convey in a commercial to launch the Macintosh. Even though it debuted in the Super Bowl of January 1984, the inception of the 1984 commercial goes back to the start of 1983. And this was the time where the battle from computing between Apple and IBM was really heating up. At a sales conference in early 1983, Jobs was already talking about IBM trying to monopolize the computer industry, along with the aspect of being like Big Brother from George Orwell's 1984. And he wanted a commercial that would reflect this. He wanted something that would stop people in their tracks. He wanted a thunderclap. This meant turning to advertising agency Chiat Day, and the ad was put in the hands of a hippie-type surfer named Lee Clow, who was the creative director in their office base in Venice Beach, California. He had also been playing with this idea of the book 1984 and early on had the tagline, why 1984 won't be like 1984. Since this idea of an Orwellian future conjured up images of a dystopian future, they thought this was the tone and the look the commercial needed. And this would enter in Ridley Scott. And hopefully you're familiar with Ridley Scott movies, specifically the amazing Blade Runner, which is set in that dystopian type future. But this would help shape the look of the 1984 ad. I, if you've never seen Blade Runner, I don't even know what to say. But at the very least, like I own a, a few different, there's like five different versions of this movie and I own it on, I have the final cut, which is seen as, you know, the proper cut, depending on who you would ask in Blu-ray. And this movie looks like it was filmed yesterday. That's how modern and advanced it is, but still again, creating that raw dystopian future. So Clow had put together a storyboard for a 60 second ad that would look like it was right out of Blade Runner. And it included a rebellious woman outrunning the Orwellian thought police and throwing her sledgehammer into a screen that was showing a big brother type character reciting a mind controlling speech. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Jobs loved the whole idea as it really captured the movement going on regarding personal computers. The original counterculture in the 60s viewed computers in a 
again, that big brother type scenario where they would become instruments used by governments and big corporations. IBM was one of those companies that resented, um, that like Apple resented and that had always been, you know, built on the, that sort of mechanical government structure. And Apple wanted to combat that. They wanted to be those rebels or pirates. So that was one of the, the ideas of giving their company name, um, giving it the name Apple. They just wanted something that sounded more natural or organic as opposed to like uh, mechanical and industrial. So since Apple is wanting to, you know, they're resenting IBM and they're wanting to rebel against them, the Macintosh would be that warrior to help them do it, kind of like a Luke Skywalker that would stand in the way of the big galactic empire or IBM. Jobs viewed himself as a rebel, so this is exactly the idea he wanted to convey with the Macintosh. Apple had become very big very quickly, and this 1984 ad would be uh, also the way for Steve Jobs to reaffirm to the world and himself the self-image of his non-conformist, rebellious persona. They wanted the ad to resonate with the rebels and hackers, which opposed the big IBM big brother type movement that was going on. Computers didn't have to be tools for the oppressors. They could be for individuals, and that's what Macintosh and Apple represented. Since Blade Runner had captured this tone so well, they turned to director Ridley Scott to put the commercial together. Others at Apple were skeptical of going this route, but Jobs said they needed something revolutionary. He wanted Apple to be like what Pepsi was becoming at the time. The Pepsi taste test challenges were creating more of a cultural identity for Pepsi, and they were becoming more than just a cola. He wanted a movement. But this was not going to come cheap, and the commercial had an unheard budget of $750,000, and that was just to film it. The next converted for today, that's like what eight, eight million, something around that seven plus, like ridiculous amount of money. Uh, the next question is, how do they get this in front of the most eyes possible? Since this was, this was the early 80s, there were basically only three networks. So there was a good chance that most things on TV had a chance to be seen by a third of the viewing public. This wouldn't be good enough, however. What was an event that had the most eyes on it at one time? Looking at the calendar, they realized Super Bowl 18 was taking place in January. This would be the perfect time to showcase the heroine's hammer smashing the screen as the big brother announces, we shall prevail. The commercial was ready, and when Jobs previewed it at the December 1983 Salesforce meeting, they went nuts and loved it. A few heads at Apple didn't feel the same way and didn't know what the hell they were watching, which caused them to panic. They asked Chiat Day to sell off the two commercial spots, which cost a cool 800 grand. Again, converting that for day, today, just absurd money, um, especially thinking about when that's before commercial spots for the Super Bowl became so expensive. It was just like a normal ad. So Apple had two time slots booked for the Super Bowl, and the heads at Apple wanted both of them sold off. The agency was able to sell off this, the second 30-second time slot, but when it came to the main 60-second slot, they would bend the truth a little. Chiat Day said they said they knew they had something special in their hands, and advertisers um, wanted people to see it. At, like as a group of advertisers, as a group of creative people, they wanted this to get in front of people's eyes. So they told Apple that they had tried to sell up that first spot, but were unable to. In reality, they had never even tried. So here's debuting this commercial to the world. Super Bowl 18 featured the Oakland Raiders versus the Washington Redskins, and by the third quarter, it was third quarter it was turning into a bit of a blowout. 
Early in the third, Oakland had just scored a touchdown, putting them up 28-9, and the viewing audience, expecting a replay, had their screens go black for about two seconds. Then some eerie music started playing. Then starts the black and white image of a marching army of drones with this ominous music, music playing, leading to the ad you've no doubt seen a countless number of times. This ad blew the 96 million people who viewed it away, as it was unlike anything they'd ever seen before. I feel this still holds up today. Like if you for some reason haven't seen this, just YouTube this commercial. Like get like it it's still massively impactful. And so you can imagine what this was like back in 1984. The ad was a huge sensation and more people were talking about it than the actual game itself. It was so big that that evening after the game, all three networks and 50 local stations were airing news stories all about the ad. It was basically going viral before going viral was even a thing. So could you imagine if this ad came out you know, now or if social media was a thing back then? This ad astonished everyone and would eventually be selected by TV Guide and Advertising Age as the greatest commercial of all time. With all the years that have still gone by, I really believe it remains the greatest ad ever. And then it changes marketing forever. The funny thing is the 1984 ad originally had poor results with test audiences. The average commercial score when testing would be around, you know, 29 for, say, an average uh, Mountain Dew commercial. The 1984 ad got a 5. Among other things, it never even showed the product they were talking about. And this was the whole point and proof that market testing could be irrelevant. Jobs wanted to sell people on something they didn't even know they wanted. I'm sure you have never thought originally about wanting an iPod or an iPhone or an Apple Watch, but you ended up with one. And this was the basis for what Steve Jobs wanted to do with Apple. Jobs, Apple, and Chiat Day had created a feeling and a movement which is at the core of advertising. The Apple 1984 commercial may have been the origin of water cooler talk, and it was something you dare not have missed in order to not feel out of the loop. This commercial changed what advertising could be. Commercials could be as epic as a movie, and companies were free to create movements and cultural statements in their ads. 1984 allowed creativity to finally run wild, and you could now do whatever was needed to grab hold of the public's attention. And then this, of course, changed the Super Bowl forever. The Super Bowl was always a big event, but when the progression of advertisements amped up after the 1984 ad, it became a showcase. Advertisers would now save their very best for the big game, knowing how important it was to deliver a hit. All companies after Apple were basically trying to match what Apple had done with 1984. Even if they would mostly fall short, they could still make a massive impact and steal the show away from the game itself. Super Bowl games can be pretty hit or miss. There have been some classics over the years, but a lot have come up short. With the commercials now becoming front and center, it didn't matter if the game sucked, you were going to be entertained by the ads. It was a no-lose situation for the viewer, and if the game was epic, then so much the better. The Super Bowl would then turn into an event that would attract as many non-sports fans as it did football fans. The progression of the halftime show would further cement this, as, again, in all honesty, the game really has taken a backseat to the event itself. For probably the only time during the year, no one changes the channel or really leaves when the Super Bowl commercials come on, dare you miss something historic. Movie studios have now saved their best trailers to air during the Super Bowl, and it's basically become a four-hour event where you can't even go to the bathroom. Okay, I'll start wrapping all up here. 
Hopefully with this, you can see how Apple's 1984 commercial was the definition of groundbreaking. Not only did it launch Apple and Steve Jobs into the stratosphere, but it changed the way companies would now market their products. It allowed for commercials to be events and it single-handedly transformed the way the Super Bowl was approached and presented. So not too bad for a bunch of pirates. But I'll wrap it up on that. Hopefully you like this show and looking, you know, a little deeper into some culturally significant stuff when it comes to marketing and everything Steve Jobs done has done has impacted the culture in some way. And he's influenced the you know, you're you're listening to this on a phone right now, I imagine, and it's all because of him. Um, so again, check out that book, Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson. It, I read it like every year. I think it's amazing because you just, each time you come back to it with sort of new interpretations and new insights and everything like that. But thank you for taking the time to listen to this show. Hope you enjoyed it. If you really like it, subscribe wherever you find your podcast. I should be there and I will be back soon with a new one. Don't you dare miss it.